This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. When did you really start taking your mental health seriously? Did you go to a psychologist at school? Because getting mental health support early can change your life. We know that. But even though more and more Australian students want help, a lot of them aren't getting it. And that's because there aren't enough psychologists at school, even though they're really important. Why? We're getting into that a bit later in this podcast. We're also checking in with the Prime Minister's visit to China. You've probably seen he had the big handshake with the President of China. What does it mean, actually, for the future of the relationship? Are things fixed here, or is this a bit of a Band-Aid solution? First, though, Melbourne Cup Day. Hack. Just a good day to get on the beers and spend some money. If you're beautiful and sexy, you'll be saying no to the Melbourne Cup today. On Triple J. Did you stop to watch the Melbourne Cup today? If you're in Melbourne, if you're having a big day, you're probably not listening to Hack right now. I'm going to admit that. It's fair to say. The day has been a huge part of Australia's identity for so long, but it's no secret that views are changing, as they do over the years, they shift. And the younger you are, the less likely you are to be into the cup. Whether it's animal welfare, gambling, the culture around drinking that you're against, maybe it's a bit of all of those things. You might just find the whole concept of the Melbourne Cup a bit cringe. It's interesting to hear that some influencers this year not really promoting the cup as much as they used to be. There's some reports of that. Maybe they're a bit nervous about doing that, don't think it will hit with as many of their younger followers. But obviously, there's still so much support for this event. It's huge around the country. So what is the future of the Melbourne Cup in Australia? Hack's been up and down the country today speaking to a bunch of you. Shalala Madora's got more. Here at a pub in Mackay, they're popping bottles and the vibes are high. I think it's just really social, a few drinks, get to see everyone, place a few bets on the horses, so yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. Oh, just getting with the mates and just getting on the piss and betting on some horses. <laughs> There's a lot of pretty women around here, so it's worth, worth yeah. coming. We came with our friends to dress up and <laughs> bet on the horses and have a fun time. While people at the race day event might be keen, when it comes to Melbourne Cup, there's no such thing as a universal view. Oh, I tend to get around every year. I put a bet on one horse, yeah. Yeah, we always watch it during skill and yeah, when we didn't have the day off, it was good. Just don't agree with horse racing. People are sort of get more information and insight of what happens behind closed doors. No, I reckon more people are getting into it, actually. I disagree. I reckon it's getting less and less. I don't know, the younger generation aren't following on. That last guy, he's onto something. According to the most recent polling on this, support for the Melbourne Cup is absolutely tanking with young people. Fewer than one in 10 people aged 18 to 35 have a high interest in the event. And only half think it's a unique part of Australian culture. There is absolutely a uh, generational issue here. We know that young people are turning their backs on horse racing in droves. Georgie Purcell is an Animal Justice Party MP in Victoria. She says there are a lot of reasons people say nup to the cup. Whether that's the welfare of horses, the issue of problem gambling, or the fact that family violence rates spike on this day and more and more people continue to turn away from it. Georgie's been part of a grassroots movement to boycott the event for years and says there's been a real shift in public perceptions. And I often reflect on 
how uncool it was to say you were opposed to racing it was actually seen as quite controversial. Now I think it's the other way around. I think young people are scared to say they support horse racing. The number of people fronting up to the event has also fallen. Last year had the lowest attendance record at Flemington in 40 years. Georgie says the industry is pulling out all the stops to try and get young people through the gates, including letting patrons wear shorts. They're putting on music festivals, they're dropping the dress standards, but it's just not working because we can see the industry for what it is. And look, it's important to note that the racing industry is massive in Victoria, as this TikToker points out. The Melbourne Cup does actually offer a lot of employment opportunities, particularly for people in hospitality, particularly for people in the entertainment industry, who indeed got absolutely ravaged by COVID with absolutely no support from the government. In Victoria alone, racing accounts for $4.7 billion in revenue and creates the equivalent of 35,000 full-time jobs. But sponsors of the Melbourne Cup are quietly stepping away, worried about public backlash. Department store Meyer has been backing the Cup for close to four decades. Not anymore. I mean, this year, obviously, Fashions on the Field didn't have a sponsor with Maya pulling out and we didn't have the Melbourne Cup parade through the city. In case you didn't watch, without a fight, one, by the way. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update, speaking to a lot of young Australians, what their views are on Melbourne Cup. Someone on the text line says it's as simple as this. Ask yourself if you condone animal cruelty. If your answer is no, you should be against racehorsing. This alone should be enough to get it banned. That was somebody's opinion there. A lot of messages as well on Instagram. Someone says, I love Cup Day. Someone else, nut to the cup. I don't support harming horses for entertainment. A lot of people with similar messages on Instagram. But then someone else, I think 10 bucks on a horse at the pub is a nice way to pretend the world doesn't suck, says someone. Another person, the one and only horse race I watch every year, but then someone else. Yeah, nah, care factor is zero for the cup. So lots of different views there. Dr Hunter Fujak is a lecturer in sports management at Deakin Uni. I want to get into this with him because he knows a lot about what we as consumers want in sport and big events. He's looked into broadcasting rights, all the rest of it. Hunter, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. As someone who's worked in and around sport for years, how differently do you think the Melbourne Cup is viewed in Australia now than it was even just a decade ago? Well, you can see it come through in the numbers. So the television ratings for the race last year uh, was basically 1 million viewers, Metropolitan, uh, which was only a third of a decade ago. And we haven't had 100,000 people come to the racetrack itself since basically the 2000 and 2004, five periods. So there's been a really sharp decline in terms of viewership and attendance. And I think that's sort of bled into the broader cultural uh, malaise that's come in. I think there are really two big issues uh, that, that horse racing in the Melbourne Cup face. The first is around uh, gambling and I guess the broader pushback that we're seeing. You know, it's pretty likely we're going to see the government introduce legislation to restrict sports betting, advertising, for instance. 
So I think there's a big cultural pushback towards ga- gambling in general. Um, and the second is around animal welfare. So that's really the other big one that's driving younger generations to lose interest in horse racing. You know, we saw in 2019, Taylor Swift was supposed to um, perform at the race, but cancelled her performance because of public outcry from animal rights activists. And you know, younger people are generally more progressive and they, they care about these kind of issues more than older generations. Um, and hence, I think, you know, even the animal activism element is going to be really significant in terms of affecting the industry over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I wonder if it's still fair then to call it the race that stops the nation if there's seems to be so many people that aren't really that interested in it. Certainly when we look at something like the Matildas um, and the Matildas final game in that World Cup against England, I estimated about 11 million people watched that either at a live site in person um, at home, wherever it might be. And certainly there are other sporting events that are probably more culturally prominent if we think about the um, AFL and NRL grand finals. And those have you know retained their interest over time a lot more than horse racing has. So do you think this is really a generational thing, that there's a real divide here between older Australians getting around the cup and the traditions and younger Australians not being that interested? Yeah, absolutely. There was a recent survey which suggested uh, that about two-thirds of respondents agree that the Melbourne Cup is a unique part of Australia's national identity. Um, whereas among people 18 to 34, it was only 50%. So certainly there are fewer younger people who are interested in the Melbourne Cup specifically and horse racing more broadly. And that just reflects generational differences in how people use their leisure and entertainment time, right? So, you know, people who are 65 plus aren't spending their time on TikTok, for instance, um, whereas younger generations are, and that's just a choice of how we spend our leisure time. The interesting thing I noticed was that the gambling spend on the cup is actually up. It's increased almost 50% over the past decade. How do we explain that? Well, I think this this really comes back to one of the big criticisms around normalising gambling. You know, young people still gamble quite a lot, and particularly we see that in sport. That's a big concern in sport is the growing pervasiveness of sport betting. But again, recent surveying shows that 31% of people rarely bet Um, but do so on the Melbourne Cup. So it is such a big cultural event that even people who don't normally bet in their everyday lives will do so for this one particular race. And are you noticing that the public in Australia today has higher expectations of sporting organisations when it comes to being socially responsible? Yeah, well, in that respect, sport organisations probably aren't that different from any type of business. Um, The expectation, of course, of of all major businesses and and prominent ones is a higher bar in terms of social responsibility. Um, And sport obviously gets treated as, I guess, a bit of a role model industry and athletes particularly as well are treated as role models. And so they they usually have, I guess, a bit of a leading role in terms of uh, social activism. Um, And yeah, that's where, again, horse racing faces, I guess, an uncomfortable reality in the context of, you know, animal welfare. Can we talk about like the broadcasting of it as well? Because I find that really interesting. Fewer people are obviously watching the Melbourne Cup on TV. Those lucrative rights probably aren't so lucrative anymore, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Channel 10 took over the rights from 2019 and their five-year deal ends with this particular year. Um, And so I guess that's a precarious time for, for horse racing because obviously there will be a renewal and they're not going to necessarily be able to renew those rights from a position of strength. 
horse racing is, I guess, a little bit different from, say, the AFL or the NRL, where a very large proportion of their income comes from television rights. You know, for horse racing, obviously, their more primary source is the gambling revenue. So they're probably a little more um, immune from a decreased rights deal simply because, as you pointed out, the gambling revenues are still quite strong. Interesting. I want to come back to that. We've got a lot of messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, not interested in horse racing or the cup at all. It seems like just another excuse for people to get plastered and gamble. Someone else says, we're destroying what little we have left to enjoy. Let people escape real problems, dress up, have fun, have some remorse the next morning. That's someone's uh, message on the text line. Another person says, it's all about the freedom of choice and enjoyment. The gambling is absolutely bad as anything in excess is bad for you. And someone else, Travis, says it's definitely not the race that stops a nation or the race that stops inflation. I just finished two hours of overtime to help pay the bills. This is Hark. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr. Hunter Fujak, a lecturer in sports management at Deakin Uni. And we're talking the Melbourne Cup, the way young Australians see it these days. There's different opinions, as you can hear on the text line on Instagram as well. Hunter, you were speaking before about sports broadcast deals, how the rights for the cup are maybe not worth as much as they used to be. How does that compare with other sports? Well, what we see is that the really big culturally mainstream sports are getting bigger and bigger sports rights. So, you know, the AFL just signed a record deal. They're going to be getting $650 million per year pretty soon. You know, the NRL is still getting about $400 million cricket renewed at a similarly high number as well so you know our big big sports rights are you know typically staying strong or increasing and it's really the the sports below that top tier which are starting to struggle a little more for instance you know your rugby australia's your your a-leagues and whatnot where they aren't necessarily doing so well Um, and that's got to do with i guess the changing structure of the media market you know free-to-air generally free-to-air television generally is not performing particularly strongly in terms of getting eyeballs and that again comes back to the fact that young viewers the sort of people who would be listening to this program are far less inclined to watch linear free-to-air television right they're more likely to spend time on social media and digital channels um, and the, you know, the television networks are just losing those viewers that they would have had in previous generations. How do you reckon the Melbourne Cup is going to maintain some kind of relevancy going forward if there are all of these issues culminating in terms of whether it's animal cruelty, whether it's gambling, fewer people watching free-to-air TV? How can a big event like this maintain that prestige that it holds in Australia? Well, I suppose as much as it would hurt the ego of Victorians, um, the answer to that is probably to look at what's happening in terms of New South Wales racing. You know, they've created, reinvigorated their racing carnival through the Everest, um, and a really big emphasis in the New South Wales reinvigoration has been targeting younger people to come to the races. So for the Sydney Everest Carnival, about 50% of the general admission tickets were purchased by people aged under 35. Um, and a big part of that was a shift away from a focus, you know, on the fashion and the betting to, I guess, a broader focus on entertainment. And one of the ways they've done that is by incorporating more music, more more just enjoyable day out experiences that are, that are diversified beyond just the race itself. So I believe the Everest had Hot Dub Time Machine and Empire of the Sun at this particular edition. Um, and I guess that's a really uh, a really critical way for an event-based activity like horse racing is to say to younger people, you know, this isn't just about watching races and betting. It's a day out. You listen to some music. 
you know, you might have a few drinks and have a dance, etc. And you kind of try broaden the nature of the event from just horse racing. It's really interesting. So you're saying you expect in the years ahead that we'll see less focus on the traditional racing element and more of it being people being entertained in more than one way. Absolutely. So the Australian Turf Club did a survey of general admission uh, ticket holders and it found that basically fashion was only the motivation for about 19% of people, whereas having a day out was the uh, primary motivation for 77% of people. So, you know, it's, it's about diversifying what the day involves. And we've seen other sports do this really well. So if you look at Formula One, for instance, which obviously was one of the hottest tickets in town in Melbourne, even though, you know, it can hold 100, 120,000 people per day, you know, a big success of Formula One is that they, it's not just about sitting in a seat and watching cars go around. You know, there's lots of different event stages where there are different performances throughout the day. You know, there's different food and drink options. And, you know, it's not just sitting in your seat and watching car racing anymore. It's, it's very much about a whole day event or a multi multi-day event and I think horse racing will probably need to move down that similar trajectory of making it um, a broader event of activities to really capture the hearts of, of younger generations. Fascinating. We could see a lot of changes in the decades ahead when it comes to this particular event, the Melbourne Cup, but racing in general. Look, we appreciate your insight into it. Dr. Hunter Fujak from Deakin University, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And we still got so many messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, I think people are misinformed about how the horses are treated. My dad has a lot of horses. They get treated better than you or I. Round the clock treatment you don't even get in hospitals. That's someone's message there. Another person says, Melbourne Cup's a tradition. Live within your means and enjoy the day. Someone else says, no, I I don't support it. Only thing I care about... Uh, you know, is helping people. And if all that money was donated to animal rescues or the homeless, it'd make a huge difference. Imagine that. So lots of different views there. Just a reminder as well, if you do need any support, if this day's been a bit tricky for you, the National Gambling Helpline is also there on 1800 858 858. It's got 24-7 anonymous support across Australia. Hack. It came down to needing to drive to the shops or taking me to my appointments and the shops won because we needed food. On Triple J. Did you ever see a psychologist at school? Did your school even have one? Because getting mental health support early is really important, but as we know, so many young Australians want help, but they just don't have access to it. In Tasmania, we're hearing some people are waiting up to six months to access the support they need in schools. And it's a problem right around the country. There's not enough psychologists. Reporter Evan Wallace has been looking into this. And just a warning, this story talks about suicide, self-harm. If you think you might not be able to listen to that, good idea to tune out for the next five minutes. In year 11, I tried to commit suicide and I was in hospital for a really long time and because of that, I failed my exams. For most of her teenage years, Susanna Manny has battled mania and depression. I could barely concentrate. I was sleeping all the time, really withdrawn from my friends, family and like activities and passions that I love to do. As her mental health got worse, Susanna wanted to get help from a psychologist, but sadly her family couldn't pay the gap for a Medicare-subsidised psychologist appointment or afford petrol money to access a free clinic. And she couldn't see a psychologist at school because there wasn't one there. Susanna's mental health kept spiralling and she ended up dropping out of school. She said things would have been a whole lot different if she had access to help at school. 
I think would have helped me with getting the right diagnosis straight away. So I would have been able to be on medication sooner and I probably wouldn't have went through a lot of things that I had been through. So I probably wouldn't have tried to commit suicide because I was getting help. Susanna is one of thousands of Tasmanians who've struggled to see a school psychologist. In June, the average waiting time to see a school psychologist in Tassie was sitting at 168 days. Nationally, there's a marked undersupply of psychologists generally and school psychologists in particular. Paul Batoya worked as a school psychologist for over 16 years and he says early diagnoses are really important. Sometimes when you work with adults, for example, they may have got to 25 or 30 or 35 and had you know, real difficulties in, in social interaction with other people and lots of misunderstandings. If they'd been aware of that, that, that that was the reason for their social difficulties earlier on, that may have given them an easier run through childhood and adolescence and into adulthood, for example. But because of the long wait times to see a psychologist, Paul says it sometimes means only students with the most severe mental health disorders are getting help. It's harder to do the proactive work and the preventative work. And some kids under those circumstances do slip through the cracks and they're not seen at all. Paul says the stress of seeing students not being able to access the help they need takes a personal toll. Some psychologists leave the industry. We'd like to have a situation where everybody gets the support that they need all the time, but unfortunately there's limitations there. When children and adolescents who really clearly need help and support are not able to get it, that can be distressing for the psychologists. In Australia, almost 40% of young people aged 16 to 24 are living with a mental health disorder. And less than half of Australians aged under 34 with a mental health disorder have had a consultation for their mental health. Connie DeGolis is CEO of the Mental Health Council of Tasmania. She says more young Australians are asking for help, but it's not there. What we haven't done with this increasing proportion of people reaching out is actually increase the range of options to them as to what that support can look like and who they can go to to help them understand where those supports are. One of your most recent surveys, 43% of respondents said they or a person who they supported had been on a wait list for six months or more to access mental health services. And then for those waiting for more than six months, 80% were offered no assistance. What do these numbers say to you? They say to us that the system that people actually need, the responses that people need, isn't available at the moment. For Susanna, she says while sometimes it's difficult to access professional services, there are always people out there who will help you. It does get better. I know that that is something that everyone says a lot, but it really does. And I think you're better off trying to just keep at it instead of giving up. Because I was at the point where I gave up and everything got so much harder. And now I'm picking up the pieces and my life has improved a lot. Hack on Triple J. Evan Wallace with that story. And remember, if it's raised any concerns with you, you can always contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Some messages. Someone says, not enough social workers either. Where I live, there's one social worker for 1,500 students. It's not fair on them, the kids, the carers or the teachers. Another person, Nick in Perth, says, as someone who's trying to figure out at the age of 25 if I've just had ADHD this whole time, I'm waiting eight months for a psych. I can painfully relate to this. 
All right, time to move on. We're talking Alvo's trip to China. Hack. Australia's relationship with China appears to be on the mend. Prime Minister has finally met with China's leader face-to-face in Beijing. We knew this was a meeting that was going to go well. This was a concerted effort by both leaders to put years of tension to bed and focus on the positives. On Triple Jack. Yeah, seeing a picture of Australia's Prime Minister shaking the hand of China's President Xi Jinping in, in China is something that probably even just a couple of years ago seemed a long way off. Australia's had a rocky relationship with China in recent years. You might remember in 2020, China brought in some harsh trade restrictions on some Australian products. And Anthony Albanese has been trying to improve this relationship. And he's just wrapped up a three-day visit to China, the first visit there by an Australian leader since 2016, since Malcolm Turnbull. Did it work? Are we all good with China now? And if we are, how long is it going to last? Well, let's ask an expert. Yun Zhang is the Australian Institute of International Affairs China Matters Fellow, and she's with us now. Yun Zhang, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Are we all good with China now? Are we friends again? Well, in the short term, yes. Uh, I think the relationship's as good as it can be. Uh, the, the message appears to be that we are um, choosing to forget about what has happened in the past five years, the tensions, and we're looking towards the future, which both governments seem to portray a very positive message. But as we know, uh, in foreign policy, in diplomacy, things are always very tricky and there will definitely be challenges ahead um, because our interests are never perfectly aligned. Yeah, it seems weird, doesn't it? Because there are still so many issues that Australia clearly has that haven't been addressed around human rights, around spying allegations. There's a lot of attention on China's relationship with Taiwan. None of that's really been addressed too much, has it? No, that, that is quite correct. But I guess uh, the question is whether those things will blow up and affect the bilateral relationships or will they be able to be resolved diplomatically um, behind the scenes? Is it in China's interest to have a really good relationship with Australia? Because obviously from our perspective, we've been focusing on why politicians have wanted to improve this relationship for years. Why is it important for China to improve the relationship? Oh, it is absolutely important for China. From Australia's perspective, of course, China is Australia's biggest trading partner and we export a lot of of our products, uh, including resources to China. But from China's perspective, this relationship is really uh, mutually interdependent. They are also relying a lot of um, imports from Australia. Um, So, for example, the resource in terms of uh, iron ore and coal, they are essential for, uh, for China's development. How bad was this relationship over the past few years? I mean, looking at the history of Australians' diplomatic relations with China, how would you describe the last few years? It was... uh... It was probably the worst since uh, the the diplomatic relationship was established. Uh, there was, uh, as some people call it, a deep freeze where the Chinese officials were refusing to engage or even talk to uh, senior Australian officials for many years. And that's quite unprecedented. Is there a lot of response to um, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to China in China itself? Like, is this something that's getting a lot of attention over there? It is getting some attention. 
Um, there are pictures of uh, them shaking hands, uh, splashed across the front page of newspapers. Uh, but as you know, uh, the, the media uh, ecosystem in China is controlled by the government uh, through propaganda, through censorship. So, so um, the message is uh, coming out of the trip is that, you know, the, the, the relationship going forward is positive. Um, so that is what the media is saying as well. What about our relationship with the United States? Like, how is that going to uh, affect our ongoing relationship with China in the years ahead, do you think? So that is uh, one big challenge. Um, from China's perspective, Australia has always been a follower of the United States. And um, therefore, if the U.S., um, China relationship deteriorates, that will affect Australia's relationship with China as well. What's been the impact, Yunjiang, on this really frosty relationship as it's been described on Chinese Australians? Has there been a big impact there? And I'm wondering, like, will they be really happy with what has happened this week, the progress that's been made? So, yes, um, the toxic debate around China for the past few years within Australia has had a lot of a uh, big impact on Chinese Australians, uh, me personally uh, included. Um, but there's a wide, diverse range of views within the Chinese Australian communities. Um, of course, a lot of people in the community is very happy to see the uh, ease in the relationship, which uh, we hope that will mean flow through to the to mean that uh, there'll be um, less uh, racist, uh, xenophobic and sus less suspicions to Chinese Australians. But of course, there are also Chinese Australians um, who perhaps, uh, you know, uh, think that uh, uh, the government is perhaps a, a little acting a little bit too fast. Interesting. It's definitely uh, something that's, you know, getting a lot of coverage across the board. It's interesting to get your take on it. China expert Yun Zhang, thank you very much for coming on Hack and for breaking that down. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.